Thank you all for stopping back for another episode of Backlash Podcast. This week we're going to have two guests. We're going to talk to Paul Hartman quickly about the Minnesota Muskie Expo, and then we're going to talk to Hans Mann with Buffalo Harbor Outfitters, and we're going to talk uh, Big Water, Fast Current, Red October Tubes, a few other topics in there too. So, Brad, uh, let's see here. What do we got going on? A week and a half, we're going to be in Minnesota, which is half the reason we have Paul on today. And new venue, and I think we're all excited to get out of the old venue. Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. I mean, that venue had kind of run its course. Uh, we're going to be down at the state fairgrounds. Looking forward to that. It sounds like we've got a lot more parking. We have some uh, a bigger environment to actually uh, put on the show. It's, it should be cool, you know, and it's been 36 months, Jeff. Think about that. That's a long period of time for us to not have a musky show in Minnesota. And hey, guess what? We're back. Right. Yeah. The last time we were going to be there, we were just roughly two weeks away from it. So we had already had 12 months expire and we, uh, we missed out on that show. And then it's been since canceled twice, right, Brad? I think that's what it was. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, if you think back, this is kind of crazy. We just got done with the Milwaukee show here a couple of weeks ago. It had been two years since we had been at that venue, two years since we had been in Chicago. So, you, you know, you think about it, it was, it was a full two years from the last time we were at that show. We didn't have that two years for the Minnesota show. So it, it's pretty wild to think about. Time just blows away. Oh, yeah, I know it. Quite honestly, you know, we've talked about it before. We all thought we were going to have all the spare time last winter without shows, and it just blew on by just as quick. So it's, like you said, it's crazy how fast time flies. I mean, heck, the Friday of the Milwaukee Muskie Expo, my daughter got her driver's license that morning at 6 a.m., and so now I have a driver in the house, which is insane because as a 30-year-old, I shouldn't be able to have a daughter that can drive, right, Brad? A uh, 30-year-old? Come on, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> you got a lot of gray hair for 30, Jeff. Yeah, I know. I aged quickly. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's amazing how fast time goes, like we said. And so I understand your circumstances. I'm not that far behind you, I guess, with my daughter. So, you know, it, it just blows away. And, hey. I'm looking forward to meeting and seeing some of the people, the familiar faces that I've missed for the last couple of years at the Minnesota Muskie show. It's always fun to uh, be able to go to a show and visit with a bunch of people. That's absolutely a fact. So with that being said, if you're still looking, if you're not going to make it out to a show and you're looking for gear for this year, check out teamrhinooutdoors.com or muskymayhemtackle.com. And Brad, I know we've talked about it on previous episodes. I think we would have just seen episode number three of Mayhem's 10,000 Casts. I know we've been trying to push that one kind of hard because it's a pretty cool show that everybody's got going on out there. Why don't you, for anybody that would have missed a previous episode, let's talk one more time about 10,000 Casts. Yeah, I appreciate that, Jeff. You know, it's been something that I've always wanted to go do. I've wanted to uh, present a TV show, and it finally came in fruition here this year. You know, KOTV through the Roku network, you know, any Roku device that you can you can pick out there that plugs into your TV, or maybe you got a Roku TV, you can go out and get it for free, KOTV channel, and uh, otherwise you can go to kotvchannel.com and watch it on any mobile device for free as well. So you have those options, 
that's how you can look at it. It's Saturdays and Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. as well as noon live. And then on Sundays, they go on demand. And then second of all, you can go to YouTube, look up Mayhem's 10,000 Cast on YouTube, and you will find at 10 a.m. our latest episode will be out on Sunday mornings. So go check it out. It's been fun. I'm looking forward to uh, doing it again this coming season. And uh, we did five episodes for this season. It's uh, It's been a blast and definitely making some noise. Yeah, it is. I get a lot of people talk, talking to me about it, friends of mine, you know, saying, hey, have you checked out these episodes? And I have. I've watched everyone to date. Anyways, Brad, I don't have anything else to talk about this week. I know we try to keep the chit-chat down to a minimum because people don't come here to listen to me and you talk. They come to listen to whatever guests we're bringing that week. That's uh, definitely something that we try to focus on. And let's dial up our first conversation with Paul Hartman. It'll be a short conversation. We're hoping to talk to Paul for uh, maybe 10 minutes. And then we're going to go talk to Hans Mann about Buffalo Harbor Outfitters and Red October Baits. All right, our first guest is Paul Hartman. And the reason we have Paul on is because we're going to talk about the Minnesota Muskie Expo. Paul, finally, the Minnesota Muskie Expo is back. New location. And, I mean, I'm guessing the dates are probably even a little bit different because typically you guys were the the caboose. You were the last show of the season. Let's talk a little bit about location. Let's talk a little bit about the dates. Yes, yeah. So we're March 4th, 5th, and 6th this year, 36-month hiatus. So there's just so much new stuff out there for people to come see. We are at the State Fairgrounds in the Warner Coliseum. They put 8,000 people in there for the Shrine Circus. So we have parking for... 8,000 plus people and it's awesome to finally not have people coming through the door this year angry that they had to walk five blocks from where they park. Yeah, obviously as a vendor and as as somebody that would, I mean, even on Sundays, you know, there'd be people lined up around the block because the vendors are there parking at like six o'clock in the morning to try to get a decent spot to get out of the place. I'm assuming that this won't be an issue. There won't be any shuttles. There won't be parking in little parking lots everywhere that are covered with snow. This should be, I would say, typical to a normal muskie show that we would normally attend. Because, I mean, the past facility, like once you got into the building, it was a very nice facility. But everything leading up to that point was kind of a disaster, I would say. We can all agree on that. Yes, yeah. Well, at this place, the lighting's not as good. It's not a basketball court. It's an arena. But like you said, the trumping, the trumping everything would be free parking and just tons of it across the street to the south. We have, I think, for 500 cars, parking spaces. And then just to the north and west of there, one block, we have a lot that goes down literally a third of a mile all the way along that whole end of the fairground. So we have tons, and that's been our biggest challenge at that old facility all these years. And so excited to be here. And yeah, it's still central. It's two miles north of where we were before. So still central location. Two million people come to see the state fair there every year. So everyone's familiar with where it is. Obviously, in the last couple of years, we've seen an increase in, you know, I would say the, musk, the amount of musky anglers on the water. So there's a lot of people that may just be knowing of this Minnesota show for the first time. If you're coming out to the show, what can you expect? Um, well, we have just a, an awesome lineup of seminar speakers. To me, it's like a three-day musky school. If you came there and just sat in on all the seminars we have, 
we got this Sim Seminar stage set up where it's everyone from Jim Sirik and Josh Borowski, Doug Wagner, Keys, Thomas, it's the who's who. We have some bait-making panels and guide panels and stuff like that that's a little bit more interactive. But to me, that's the biggest bargain of the show. But everybody's there looking for the hot new secret lure, um, trying to find out the new secret lake, just looking for a nugget to put a few more fish in the boat. And there's obviously a lot of changes in tackle over the past 36 months. But for me, I think most of the people are there to see the manufacturers, the like you, Jeff, with all the custom baits you're selling, I mean, that's what draws the people. So, Paul, since we moved facilities, the one thing I know you guys did an unbelievable job of with the last show was the amount of attention you guys give to kids. Is all of that still the same as it was in previous shows? It is, yeah. So Fishing for Life, they're bringing in all the midway games that they bring. They have everything from the trout pond that they put on through, I think, six different games that they do. And then George, his vision was always trying to get kids into the whole lure-making aspect of it. Um, so we have a booth set up where kids take home 40 bucks worth of free tackle. They make their own tinsel bucktail. Um, they're able to airbrush a crankbait and bring that home with them. We have bulldog swimming shads and that kind of stuff that they're able to take some of the worm chunk paint and paint those up and the detail these kids put into stuff and the passion they have for it is pretty cool and uh this year we have a kid that he's been there a number of years when he was i think eight until he was 11 and then we missed out on three years of shows but hooked on musky baits is going to be there so it's a 14 year old that got a passion for it at the show and now he's got a booth at the show and he's selling stuff and it looks good yeah, definitely cool. So for anybody that wants to stop out, let's talk about show hours once. When can people come visit you? Or all of us, anyways. Um, yeah, yeah. Friday, we are 2 to 8.30. Saturday, 10 to 6.30. Sunday, 10 to 4 o'clock. Once again, it's at the Warner Coliseum over at the Minnesota State Fairgrounds. I think every Google search puts you right at the front door. So. And then how about tickets? If people want to get tickets now, are they available or do they have to buy them at the door? We do them all at the door. Ten dollars for the day, or uh, seventeen for a three-day pass. I think a lot of the shows we're seeing now are twelve, fifteen, seventeen for a day pass. So we're still the bargain out there. This year we gave a new slant to it too, where the whole outside of the Coliseum is now the Minnesota Anglers Boat Show. Uh, we got Rangers there, Lunds, Crestliners, Kingfishers going to be there. And uh, all these are boats you can take home. I keep hearing these horror stories of people trying to order an aluminum boat and then, you know, they're being told that it won't be available until September. These guys have everything, you know, in all of those brands and you can sign the papers at the show and pick it up the week after. So uh, if you're looking to custom order a boat, I think you can still have it for all those brands before musky opener. So get down there, you know, check stuff out and, like I said, with all the electronics and rigging, there's just so much that's changed on that. So some great deals down there. You definitely don't want to miss that stuff. Brad, anything you think we missed on the show? It looks like Paul came through like he always does. And uh, we're going to have a, a show coming up here in Minnesota. It's been a couple of years, Paul, but I'm um, looking forward to it. And I hope everybody comes out and takes a look at everything. The most common call I think I get is, uh, what's new at the show? Why should I come see it? And year to year, things change a little bit. 
after 36 months, I mean, think how much the industry's changed. Brad, 18 months ago, you didn't have a trigger. You didn't have a detonator. You didn't have a grenade. And then all the new stuff you had 18 months before that also is kind of forgotten by you, but all the people walking through the door, a lot of them have never seen it. For you, Jeff, I mean, if you think you've probably expanded your lineup by 30% in the past 36 months or more. I would say more. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I look at your website and it's like, it's unbelievable how much it's grown in that time. So, I mean, so much of this is going to be new to the people. And obviously we have, you know, a third of the booths here are new tackle companies or people with new ideas that have come, you know, come along the past three years and wanted to get in. So for everyone, it'll, it'll really be a new show this year. It'll be fun to see people in there. I think a big part of it too, Paul is, you know, I mean, I know for Jeff and myself, probably even you, you know, there's a lot of familiar faces that we haven't seen now for 36 months. So a lot of times it's one time a year that I get to see some of these people. And I think that's the coolest part about doing the shows is, is getting to talk to some people that we don't normally see on a daily basis. We maybe don't communicate on a daily basis, but guess what? Shows bring us all together and uh, that's our opportunity to actually visit. No, it's awesome. There's a lot of camaraderie there and there's just, there's so much that's changed. Hammernick left muskies and he's doing tarping in that amount of time. Bob Benson chased after him down there. Luke got glasses. Brad, you probably bought four boats in the past 36 months, right? <laughs> well, <in> the <laughs> I bought two. How's that sound? <laughs> okay. Every time I see you, I'm like, no, that can't be Brad. He doesn't have that boat. And then it's like, no, that was Brad. (laughs) That's awesome. I I have a passion for boats, Paul. Sorry. (laughs) It's as good as it gets. Mine's supposed to be delivered in time for the show. So I'm I'm excited, too. Uh, That's good stuff. I can't help but laugh at that, Brad. That's so funny. (laughs) (laughs) Even Uh, true, huh? I'm fortunate to have the wife I have because uh, I don't know how many other women would put up with my my boat addiction, (laughs) I guess. You did well. You married smart. That's awesome. (laughs) Uh, Good stuff. Well, on that note, Paul, I just want to thank you for taking some time out of your schedule so you could talk about the Minnesota Muskie Expo. I know Brad and I, we've been talking about it for weeks. It's good to have you on just so you can kind of explain to people what we have going on because there's, like you said, there's so many changes. I mean, it's finally a show there in forever, new location. It's going to be a a good time at the Minnesota Muskie Expo. That's awesome. Well, one last thing, if you have a uh, Abba Garcia reel, bring it down there. We got those guys down there again this year teaching you how to clean it up and get it put back together good as new. So we hope to see everyone down there this year and appreciate you guys for coming back as exhibitors. You guys are the ones that make the show. Yes, sir. We look forward to seeing you in, uh, let's see here. By the time this one comes out, it'll be just a week and a half. This one will come out on a Wednesday, Paul. So we're going to see you in about a week and a half. We will catch you guys there. Thanks for the time. Yes, sir. Thank you. You guys take care. All right. Our guest this week is Hans Mann with Buffalo Harbor Outfitters. You might also see him on social media as Hans the Carver. He definitely uh, carved himself a niche, pun intended, on um, some, you know, it's muskies that you literally whittle out of wood, right, Hans? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. (laughs) First time we've had you on the podcast, Hans, you have a lot of stuff going on. You have some bait stuff going on, some guiding stuff, and then, like we just talked about there briefly, the uh, carving. Why don't you kind of lay that out 
all those different hats that you wear. Also, just kind of maybe give everyone an introduction and what got you into musky fishing. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I guess my, uh, the biggest person that kind of got me into, uh, you know, fishing for, for muskies was my grandfather. We used to have a, uh, he had a timeshare up in, uh, Perry Sound up in Georgian Bay. Basically, we would go up there every year when I was real little up till I was about seven. So, I mean, obviously I wasn't up there catching muskies, but it was always the stories and, uh, they did a lot of pike fishing, but they would every once in a while catch a muskie, you know, and it was always a big deal. We went from there after he died, that kind of, uh, the Perry sound thing went away, but we ended up, we, we ended up going up to the St. Lawrence for family vacations up in like the Thousand Islands area. So basically that was, you know, same thing. I mean, in my younger years, we were mostly targeting Northerns, uh, you know, with, uh, spoons and whatnot, but every once in a while we'd pop a muskie and it was always a, you know, it was always a, a big thing. And as I got older, I, of course, you know, was starting to get better at fishing and, uh, was getting more into it on my own and everything like that. And then next thing you know, we were, when we were going up there, we used to open and close an Island up in the, up on the St. Lawrence. So we would be up there in the spring and in the fall and up there for vacation for a couple of weeks. You know, we started putting in time when I was a, uh, uh, early teen, you know, like 13, 14 years old, we would actually spend time musky fishing. And, you know, it's, it's pretty tough up there just casting, which is all we really did. We didn't catch much. And, uh, as we got into it more, it got better and better than I got my own boat. Then we started heading up there on our own and that's where, you know, we started getting better at it and, you know, learned how to troll. And it's funny. We, I mean, now I pretty much only cast. I mean, that's really how I got into to musky fishing was doing that. And then, of course, it was funny because I never really focused on musky back home. But then because we got into it up on the St. Lawrence, I started, you know, fishing the Buffalo Harbor and the Niagara River and Chautauqua Lake and stuff like that. One thing led to the next. And now, uh, you know, years down the road, um, I mean, I had a, a career path that took me through all sorts of different things. And, you know, for the last four years, I've been a full-time charter captain in the Western New York area. However, I do travel up to the St. Lawrence to do trips for, for, you know, extended stay trips. You know, I focus a lot in the fall on the Buffalo Harbor and the Niagara river. And then I do, I mean, trips on, on Chautauqua all throughout the year. I also do multi-species. I do walleyes and bass and all those other things that we're not supposed to be fishing for, but you know, uh, Western New York is not exactly the, uh, the musky destination. So I do a lot of it locally, but you know, I got to keep working. So basically, yeah, that's what, uh, that's, I mean, but my, you know, my true love is the musky fishing. And that also kind of is what got me into, you know, the fish carving and the bait making and all that stuff, which is, uh, you know, that was a whole nother thing where I don't even know how the heck I got into doing that. I actually was, uh, I tore my aorta like five years ago. And, uh, when I did that, I had a lot of time and that's when I taught myself how to carve. Didn't even know I could do it. And then all of a sudden, you know, made a couple and people were knocking down the door to get me to carve for them. You know, one thing led to the next and now I'm doing that. So, I mean, my winter times are full of carving, carving fish and making, uh, musky cranks and, you know, making red October baits and, you know, it keeps me busy and it, it keeps the family going. So it's a, it's a great thing. And I feel very lucky to be able to do what I do, you know? Yeah, absolutely. 
So let's talk a little bit about the carving part about it. If people want to check out everything that you've done, where can they find that? Well, the best place to go look is right on, uh, I mean, Facebook. That has, uh, if you went to, there's a, there's a Hans the Carver page that you can go to. And I mean, that has basically everything from the last five years in there. If you just, you know, go look at the pictures on the, on the page. That is the most, you know, up to date with all the pictures. With, the, with that being said, you know, the website's always hard to get new pictures on there and everything. So there's good info on the website too, but it doesn't have like any of my latest stuff, you know, or anything like that. So the, the Facebook page is the best place to go. You know, we got an Instagram page too. Hans the Carver. You can go look at the website or the Facebook or whatever. You know, got a lot of stuff on there showing my baits, showing, showing the carvings. I definitely recommend our listeners check it out. It's really awesome. I mean, the stuff that you can do, it's it's hard to believe the stuff that's even made out of wood. I mean, it's those fish look Thanks. so realistic. It's awesome. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I work hard on them. So, I mean, it's a, uh, those fish, man, they're tough. Takes a long time, you know, a lot of, uh, especially those muskies. That's a, uh, that piece of wood probably weighs as much, if not more, than the muskie weighed. So, I mean, you're manipulating a huge piece of wood for a lot of time. You know what I mean? It's not, uh, it's not as easy as it looks, you know, you got to constantly flip that thing over and look at it up from all different angles. I mean, it's a, uh, challenge, but you know, I like it. It's fun finishing them. Yeah. The, the word on the street, Hans is plain and simple that we could probably find you on your porch sitting there whittling a little bit. <laughs> yeah. The, the porch, uh, the porch is pretty cold you know, throughout the winter. So <laughs> I, I got, I got a shop in the backyard with a nice gas heater in there. So that's where I spend most of my time. Just out of curiosity, and maybe you don't want to share, but I know I can only imagine, cause I've been around carvers before my, my grandfather carved actually one of our uh, speakers that we've had on uh, the podcast before Matt Seifert does some carving as well, and he does a lot of little figurines of, of people's faces and so on and so forth. I mean, it, it's really oh, wow. remarkable. I wish I had yeah. the talent. How many hours are you putting into a muskie? You know, with everything, when everything's said and done, I mean, it's we're we're probably between two hundred and two hundred and fifty hours. It's very hard to get something that is wood. I mean, you know, you're you're starting with a big chunk of wood, and to get that to look you know, to get the, the curves right and to get it to look like it's actually swimming and to get it to, I mean, it's just, a, you, you can't do anything too fast. It's a slow process, especially at the beginning, because, you know, you got a big piece of kiln dried cedar. It's a costly piece of wood, along with the fact that somebody's counting on you and paid you a lot of money to make something that looks exactly like a live fish. And that's what they're expecting to get. So you can't rush it. You know what I mean? Like you got to, Keep stepping back and looking at it and really think before you uh, remove wood, you know? So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a challenge. And I mean, that, that's kind of what I like about it. But, uh, you know, those are also, I mean, I'm re- only really getting one or two done a year, you know, especially of the muskies. It's also a thing where I'm right in the middle of, of growth with everything that I'm doing. I mean, the, the carvings went crazy. The baits are going crazy. I mean, Red October's blowing up, you know, along with, uh, you know, my guide service is very busy. So it's something where I, I don't have time for it all, but I'm still doing it. And, uh, you know, they take a long time, man. <laughs> I mean, every one of those little scales is burned in. I mean, it's got to be 10 to 15 layers deep in paint, 
you know, to get it to look legit. Well, huge respect, Hans. I mean, it's totally incredible what you're accomplishing there. And I don't know that there's anybody else out there that's doing that type of deal. I mean, especially for a muskie. So it's absolutely incredible what you've done. And if anybody hasn't seen it, they, like Jeff said, go to the Facebook page. I mean, seeing it in person is 10 times. I mean, it's so insane. It's really cool. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's, uh, they definitely look better in person. I have a hard time getting good pics of them. I mean, hopefully if people are around, I mean, get out to the those local shows that Red October's at. They usually will have the latest one in the booth at the shows that we go to. Check it out if you can, you know. So if somebody wanted to order a custom, say they, they caught their personal best of 54 and a half, 54 and three quarter, whatever. It doesn't matter yep. what it is. But, and they wanted to order one. I mean, how do they go about that, Hans? Well, I mean, you basically just get in touch with me, whether you call me on the phone or, or shoot me a message on Facebook or to my number or whatever. At that point, we just start talking about, I mean, uh, you know, what exactly they want, you know, what their expectations are. I only do 360 degree replicas. I have a lot of people that ask to do a wall mount or something like that, which I'll gladly do a wall mount, but I'm still doing all parts of it. So it doesn't make it any less costly. You know what I mean? And that's just because that's just what I do. Anybody can just contact me and I'll, I'll get them in when I can. The problem is, is I got a pretty big list right now and I'm probably, I'm, I'm years out at this point. I'm really, <laughs> as much as I want to push them, I can do smaller fish. Like I, I've done some perch and got them in or some smaller sized fish, but getting muskies in is tough right now. We're looking at a couple of years out right now. If you want, I'll get you on the list, you know. That's incredible. Well, good for you, man. It, definitely a, a true piece of work. Um, it's art. Honestly, it's just total art. I'm interested in getting one, Hans. I, I think they're so incredible. I know the first one that I ever seen that you had done was Kevin Goldberg's. I think he did it for his wife. Once I seen that, I'm like, oh, man, I truly appreciate the effort and the work that goes into it. And it's totally incredible. Well, thanks, man. It is definitely just an art piece. I mean, there's nothing, you know, there's no, there's nothing given to you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's starting from scratch. So it's, uh, it's going good though. I, I love doing it. It just is something that I can't do fast. It's nothing that I can turn out a ton of, you know, I, I have to do it at my pace. Absolutely. Makes perfect sense. Let's yeah. shift gears a little bit, Hans, and uh, let's dive into Eastern fishing. Let's talk about some of the bodies of water that you're fishing. Kind of dive into that whole side of it. Yeah, I mean, what do you want to talk about first? Well, I know some of the bodies of water. Why don't you share with us where you're actually guiding so that if people are interested oh, yeah. in, in booking a trip with you, let's talk about some of the, the ways that you're actually fishing and sure. uh, some of the techniques that you're actually using. All right. Well, so right locally uh, in Buffalo, where I, you know, I live uh, just east of Buffalo. There's basically, we got the Buffalo Harbor and the Niagara River. They used to be much better. <laughs> uh, the Buffalo Harbor went through a, a period where it was, you know, a small, it's a small body of water that was wildly overfished uh, to the point where the muskies were almost gone. Since then, uh, the Niagara Muskie Association has worked very hard to get, you know, the size uh, limit raised up to 54 inches. I mean, it's really just a catch and release fishery at this point that has really 
helped things. I mean, people have really upped their game when it comes to catch and release and everything like that and starting to show signs of uh, coming back around. With that being said, the Niagara River is a pretty good fishery, especially for numbers. Uh, It has been choking up some big ones in the fall, but we do a ton of jigging in there. I mean, that's where we really, I mean, the big, you know, our big starting point with Red October was jigging tubes in the Niagara River, kind of morphing that out across the rest of the the musky world to these other rivers. However, now the the tubes have become more than a, uh, than a jigging bait. I mean, we mostly cast with them now. It's something where the, the Niagara is a great place to come. If you want to cut your teeth on jigging, like catching fish off the bottom, like legitimate fish off the bottom. I mean, not as much of a, you know, a vertical presentation, like, like a bondy bait or something. It's more of a you know, you cast that tube out and drag it along the bottom, almost like a smallmouth tube. We use that technique a lot. It's definitely probably the top technique for getting fish in the Niagara River. So a lot of people really like doing that. We also have the lower Niagara River, which is a very cool fishery beneath the falls uh, that you can go down there and cast and, and fish the shoreline of basically the whole thing. And that has giants, but less numbers. Along with that, I, I spend time on Chautauqua, so that is uh, you know an hour and a half away from me, so that's not a bad ride, so I will do trips out there, just day trips, and that is a very fun lake, lots of fish, you know, uh, good, good for getting bites. The last couple of years, we've got a couple 50 inches out of there, so it's been, you know, putting up some nice fish too. And then last but not least, I, I spend, you know, 30 days on the St. Lawrence every year. You know, I mostly do four to eight day trips. That's pretty much the, the main things that I do for muskie fishing. So Hans, let's talk a little bit about that technique that you're talking about. The I mean, you're basically dragging this tube along the bottom. Is this something that is uh, a technique that's specific to the area that you fish? Or do you suppose this is something that's not utilized in, say, the Midwest, for example? Because a lot of our listeners are, you know, in the Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota area, are there areas that you think that that could be productive, you know, in the Midwest? Obviously, the one thing we'd have concern about would be really deep bodies of water that stratify. I'm assuming with the river, that's not an issue, you know, so those fish don't, there's no thermocline there. Right. So I mean, that would be a concern in our areas, but have you tried it yes. anywhere else? Oh, yeah. Uh, the biggest, I mean, the big difference with that is you, you were right about the current. The current is what keeps those fish it's a, it's a quite stiff current across the whole body of water. So they really have no place to go. And if they want to get out of the current, they have no choice but to go to the bottom because the bottom creates friction on the water. And even if it doesn't completely stop the water, it's slower near the bottom. You know, not to mention there's rocks and logs or whatever that may break the current and they'll sit behind it, you know. So you have, so the current is what pushes them down there. Now, in the case of the difference between doing like a tube jigging, uh, where you would be, I say dragging, but I don't really mean dragging. I mean, you cast it out and you're very heavy bottom contact, but you try to keep popping it and keeping it up off the bottom. So you're just touching the bottom for a second and then popping it, you know, and trying to keep it in the bottom, you know, two feet. That is... Hard bottom jigging is what I would call it. It's where there's areas where the current is so fast that there is not any kind of silt or any kind of, you know, soft bottom. 
it's where there's enough current that that's what's happening. And that, when you find those areas, that's where those fish are forced to stay. We find, I mean, moving out your way, I know the St. Clair River has a lot of that, more than, say, the Detroit. The Detroit is a little slower. It has a lot of soft bottom. And, it. I mean, we catch fish on the tubes in the Detroit, too, but we're popping them along more. You're not using the current to drag it because it's generally a bit of a slower current. The St. Clair has areas that are moving along that have that hard bottom, very similar to the Niagara. And of course the St. Lawrence, the St. Lawrence has that, uh, the St. Lawrence has got a whole bunch of different situations. So, I mean, you, you can do that up there. I mean, out your way, I mean, you'd really, it's, it is very situational where you would use that technique. I am not that familiar with, with a lot of your bodies of water out there. What I would say is if you can find an area where there's current and you have a hard bottom and you have, you know, 16 to 24 feet of water, like that would be a very good situation to try that. Whether, I mean, I don't know, I don't know where that may exist. When we were first going around trying to do that, I mean, we would talk to people about if they had that situation going on. And a lot of times it was like, sounded okay, but it wasn't quite right. I mean, that's that one technique. If you're going to be getting into the slower currents and, and a softer bottom, we're not going to want to do as much bottom contact. That's where you're going to switch over to more of like a, like a bondy style jigging. You know what I mean? Where you're, you're keeping it up in the water column a little bit. Yeah. I was thinking maybe below like some of the dams and stuff, Brad, you're probably familiar with that a little bit. I would imagine like some of that Wisconsin river, you know, the below the dams was, I mean, the, the depth is higher there. It's possible. I'm not sure what the bottom content is like. The dams are very, are, are a good call. Generally, there's a lot of current coming out of them, and somewhere in that tail out, there's going to be an area where there's deep water, and it's fast enough that it's a hard bottom. Now, is it got enough bait, and is there enough, is it a good enough situation that they're going to be drawn there for some reason? I'm not sure. But, I mean, the, the dams are probably your best bet at finding that out by you guys. The current thing is something that I don't normally relate to anyway, Hans. I, I think it's uh, super cool, and that was one of the topics that I really wanted to touch on. Yeah, it changes everything. I mean, it, I mean, one thing about the St. Lawrence is there's, it's a super diverse fishery. I mean, there's tons of slack water that you would fish just like any lake out by you, but there's also tons of big current. There's everything you could think of somewhere on that river because it's just vast and huge. When you're out there, I mean, you can deep water jig like I'm talking about. There's areas that are better to jig bondy style or, you know, there's areas that you, you're fishing up shallow in the slop. There's areas that you're casting off the deep weed edge. But, I mean, we seem to find a lot of the big giant fish seem to like those current breaks and seem to like current near deep water where they can ambush big bait. I mean, that's the big thing is whether you're on the Niagara or the St. Lawrence or the St. Clair, the more that you fish those rivers, the more that you, you kind of start to realize what the, you know, you know, what little things you're looking for that uh, tend to draw these bigger fish, you know, because I mean, you spend your days fishing the shallower weeds. It doesn't seem like you produce as many big fish, even though sometimes it will. A lot of the big horses that we get are deep current. Not to say that it's like the deep jigging, but 
also just casting weed edges that there's current going right down the outside of them, you know, and, you know, it changes the way that you have to cast. You can't lead the boat like you would, you know, you have to, you know, the boat's moving with current and everything's moving at the same speed. You, you don't, you, you change the way that your angles, everything changes, you know, it changes how you got to fish bait. It changes a lot of things, but it also will put fish in very predictable locations. So there's a give and a take. And the more you do it, you, you start to kind of get a feel. Yeah, absolutely, Hans. You know, one of the things that always comes back to my mind about fishing with you is, I know Greg Thomas, it's been a long time, but he went out there and visited you guys and and did some fishing, and he was talking to me about, you know, you you have a boulder in the bottom of one of your systems out there, and that boulder might be, you know, the size of a basketball, and you will find a muskie, like, hiding behind that boulder to get out of that current. I mean, maybe you can talk about that. Right. Yeah, I mean that is uh that's what's crazy about it. So I mean you if you find a good area of that hard bottomed area in those big current systems uh of the northeast, you a lot of times these fish will I mean you always think about in most situations when fish get active, they move up onto the weed edges or they move up onto the flats to feed, you know? In these situations, it almost feels like in certain areas, they use the weeds, the weeds, and they use that as almost like a, they're digesting up in there and they're really not doing much. And when it's time to eat, they slip down the break onto that bottom into the current, because I'll tell you what that current does. It just brings everything right past them, you know? So, I mean, they can go down there into, you know, on the bottom in 24 feet of water there's tons of things that live on the bottom, whether it be the gobies or the suckers. I mean, those gobies out by us get, when they get big, I mean, they can get eight inches long and they turn black and they're these like spineless little nuggets for them. You know what I mean? So they're, I mean, even these giant fish are eating these gobies. Everything eats gobies, you know, you got that going on. You got the suckers, you got, I mean, everything is out there. There's rud, there's carp, there's everything swimming around and they just go down there. If you are near a dam, I mean, things get blasted down through that dam. And next thing you know, there's, you know, confused, beat up bait fish just plopping down the river. You know, I mean, they're ready to eat and uh, they wait. So active fish will actually move deep because there's a lot of stuff to eat down there, which is kind of counterintuitive to a lot of the, you know, the places that, that a lot of people fish. So, you know, and and with that being said, you can't just focus on that you have to check it all when you're fishing up there and that's where you know the more days you're up there the more you realize what's going on at that time but i mean when they're when a when a good jigging bite is on i mean these fish are on fire they're hanging out in 25 30 feet down and i mean things go by and they bite it i mean we've had some of 13 fish days jigging with big ones (laughs) so you gotta you gotta watch for that you know you gotta watch for if that's happening if it's happening, great. If not, you got to move on, fish the deep weed edges, you know, find out what's going on. I've always said, Hans, that, uh, you know, there's eater spots and then there's like hangout spots. And can you convert a fish that's in the hangout spot to eat? Yeah, you can at times, right? But right. ultimately, you're always looking for those eater spots. And that's what you're pretty much talking about. Absolutely. And I mean, that's where... You find that in the world of jigging, but you do also when you're casting up there. I mean, 
the more you fish, the more you find some little eddy that's at the tip of an island where there's some current blown cabbage. And there's one little area that if you cast from this angle, you get a lot of fish there for some reason. And it's like, they're always different. It's like, yeah, I mean, there are areas we've had a lot of, you know, recaptures throughout the years. My one buddy, John, I think he's caught the same fish like seven times or something like that, all in the same little area. For the most part, you got new fish moving in and out of these spots just because they're A1 hunting ambush spots, you know. The more time you spend up there casting, the more of those you find. And uh, you get a, a laundry list of little trip saver spots, you know, where uh, coming down to the last uh, last light, time to make it happen, you find those spots. The great thing about it is that you find out that there's a lot in common with all those spots across the board. That's what we're looking to find is these current swept little areas, but the fish are sitting in a, you know, eddy off to the side or something like that. A place where they're, I mean, the big fish seem to stay adjacent to the, the very deep water. And I mean, there's a lot of deep water in both the Niagara or the, the St. Lawrence, you know? So, I mean, you got 200 feet of water out there. Are you dealing, Hans, with any issues from pulling those fish from that kind of depth? I mean, you're pretty much not dealing with the thermocline in most of your instances. But, um, you know, that's always a concern throughout the Midwest is... You know, you're pulling a fish from deeper water, and they're basically inflated, you know, and, and that's always a scary thing. And it's it's an area that is very touchy throughout the Midwest, and it's a concern of all of our anglers. So, you know, what's funny is we do not run into any of those issues with the deeper fish. A lot of times the, the fish that give us a harder time are, are fish caught in the shallows, but that's a lot of times that's because it's warmer water up in there. The good thing about the that those deeper runs is they're very oxygenated and it's not like there's like a pressure change or anything. It's not like you're dealing with the thermocline or something like that. Like most of that water is the same temperature from the bottom to the top. You know what I mean? So you have, um, and these fish are moving around. It's not like they're just down there. It's almost like they're, they're on the move. Like they're coming up on the edge. They're heading back down. And I mean, I, We've caught some fish 30 feet down, but I mean, the bulk of those jigging fish that we catch are 20 to 23, 19 to 23 feet down. And no, I, I don't have any problems with those fish. They swim right off real fast and hard. I don't know why that is, but it definitely has not been a problem. It's always interesting to hear, you know, everybody's standpoint. And I mean, I know a little bit about your water out there, just visiting with different people over the years and, it just doesn't seem like you deal with those same issues. So it, it's interesting. I mean, what's the, the highest water temps that you see out there in a given year on any of those bodies of water? Well, in the deep, like, uh, I mean, the highest, in the St. Lawrence, most years it peaks out at like 75. I mean, that's as hot as it'll get on on the on the surface in, in most places. I mean, Chautauqua will get warm. And they all make a, everybody gets all up in arms about that. And yeah, I mean, I, you know, if it gets too warm, we don't fish it. On the St. Lawrence, it's very rare that you run into the, the, the high temperatures. I don't let people fight fish much. <laughs> I, I keep drag tight and we get, you know, 55 inches to the neck quick. 
I get them off quick and, uh, we make sure that, I mean, I am very big on, this is how it's going to be when this goes down. You got to be ready to do this. And this is the program. And I mean, we go lickety split and that fish is back in the water. You know, as much as we want to go on the water temperature or catch them out of deep water or whatever, I think one of the big things is, is people aren't desperate enough to get that fish back in the water. I mean, if you got a setup where, you know, you got your clients ready and you got everybody ready, you get a quick picture, you get that thing back in there. I mean, that fish isn't out of the water for 20 seconds and it's back in. And that's after a quick release, you know, a quick unhooking. And that's what I focus on. I haven't lost a fish in a, in a long time. You hit it on the head, Hans. It, it's about how you release these fish and how much time you take dinking around, unhooking, how much you have that fish out of the water. I mean, it, it's yeah. everybody's concern as musky anglers. We all try to do our best, right? It's amazing. I mean, if you do do a time study on how long it takes you, it, it can be amazing if you're not right on your game. I mean, unless if there's one hook sitting in the side of that fish's beak and I see that I can just grab it with the hookouts or with my long players and just pop it. Like, unless if it's sitting there and it's perfect, that's the only time I do that. If it's not perfect, I got the nipex in my hand and anything that's shiny, it's gone. I go through more trouble hooks than anybody. And when it all comes down to it, you snip that stuff away and you get it free. You know what I mean? And don't worry about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? We got plenty of hooks. We snip it. They're gone. You get all the pieces out of it. Come get this fish. We need to get a picture and get it back. And that, that's pretty much how I run it. When we lived on the Buffalo Harbor, I mean, it was a really sad thing. I mean, I, I was fishing for muskies at the end of the heyday in the Buffalo Harbor. And I watched it just get decimated by people not catching and releasing properly. And, I mean, that was the number one reason why it got destroyed. Everyone around us takes it pretty seriously. That's always awesome to hear. That's for sure, Hans. You're doing the, the jigging thing. You're doing the normal casting thing. How about trolling? Yeah. How do you mix trolling in? My trips that I run on the St. Lawrence are 100% casting. We very rarely troll unless if it's a, uh, you know, unless if people are tired and we need to be out there, you know what I mean? Or, or whatever. I mean, uh, but we, we get fish trolling. I mean, we do a trip. I do a personal trip up there in November where we troll. I mean, I do a lot of trolling on Chautauqua, but I mean, on the St. Lawrence, it's just we dead trolling, you know, I'm trying to just keep things clean and, you know, keep them, uh, five to 10 feet down and fly around sometimes a little deeper depending on what I'm doing, but uh, it's really just structure trolling up in the, up on the Larry. On Chautauqua, it's a lot of, I, I like doing a lot of open water trolling on Chautauqua, run boards and a bunch of five inch, you know, shad style baits and go to town. Now that, that's super interesting to hear. I mean, if you think about like when you said the Larry, I, yeah. I would have thought that you would have did some more open water type stuff, you know, throughout the fall. Yeah, well, it it all depends on what part of the St. Lawrence you're talking about. Most people, when they hear the St. Lawrence, they're thinking of uh, trolling. And that has a lot to do with, you know, the, the Thousand Islands area where it's Clayton and Gananoque and the 40 Acre Shoals and all the lore of those areas. And I mean, that is a, a big trolling bite and there's monster fish to be caught there. And a lot of people love doing that. It's just not 
my style. I mean, I've caught fish casting down there. I've caught fish trolling there. But that river is very, very long, and it's immense, and there's a lot of places to go. And uh, the places that I go lend themselves to casting. It's a lot more intricate. There's a lot more very steep structure. There is not any open water. It's systems of channels and tons of weeds, tons of surface weeds, tons of, I mean, it's a real, it's a real beat down in some of those areas trying to troll. And that's where the casting kind of, to me, you fish it more effectively casting because half the time that you're, I mean, in a lot of those areas where it's very steep weed edges. So it's, it's, I mean, you can't get on them or else you hit these weed mats that just like end your troll, <laughs> you know, you're just stuck on mats of weeds that weigh so much. You have to shut down the boat. The more you do it in certain areas, the better you get. I mean, of course I got areas I got marked out where I can just go and do what I need to do, but I'm a caster at heart. People look at me and they're like, look at that big fat ass. He's probably trolling all day, but I'm not, I like casting. Don't cut yourself short. <laughs> you know, I, I think honestly, you know, if you if you look at it, most musky anglers want to catch them casting, right? I mean, it, it's yeah. a one-on-one battle. But I mean, as we always say, trolling does have its time and place, and so oh, absolutely, you know, I I love trolling. Don't get me wrong, I don't do it that much up there because I truly don't think it's the best way to catch fish. Could be just me, but I mean, that's how I like to cat, catch them. I mean, I troll 80% of the time at, in Chautauqua and I troll, I mean, other than once a year, maybe I go casting the Harbor. The rest of the time I'm trolling the Harbor. That's all I do is troll the Harbor. I troll the river, the Niagara river. Probably I troll it half the time and I jig it half the time. I, uh, I save my casting for the, for the St. Lawrence. I do a lot of trolling at home. You know, Chautauqua is a great casting lake too, though. We do a lot of we do a lot of casting there also, but that, Chautauqua is probably the most similar to a lot of the lakes out by you guys. Is you know it's a, a shallower, weedy lake. One end is is clearer, the other end is more dingy. You got a bunch of different bunch of weed edge stuff, a bunch of you know open water basins that you can fish. Got a lot to do around me. So Hans, obviously the last <laughs> few years, it seems like tubes have kind of exploded. I mean, it definitely exploded in sales. Why don't you talk a little bit about what makes a tube special? And then why don't you talk a little bit about some of the techniques guys can use if they want to u- utilize a tube for this upcoming musky season? I mean, definitely there's been a marked uh, upheaval in the amount of tubes going out the door from Red October. And I think a lot of that is, is that it's just becoming known as a, you know, a tool that you got to have uh, at times. There's a lot of people that, I mean, there's been a lot of tournaments won with them over the last couple of years. You know, it's tough when one of your best customers, you, you sell them a whole bunch of tubes and they're like, yeah, we're crushing on them. And we're like, well, how about some pictures? And they're like, well, we don't want anyone to know. So it, it, we, there, there was always a lot of that going on. But I mean, when it, when it all comes down to it, the tubes are kind of the, the traditional 10-inch monster tube or the 7.5-inch monster tube. They are just kind of the anti-musky bait. I mean... There's not much going on. There's no blades. There's no wobbling. They're very sleek and uh, subtle through the water, which is, I mean, if you've ever watched a real live fish swim, that's kind of what they do, you know? So in, we do find that the clearer waters do very well with the tubes. Uh, not that you can't catch them in stained water, but the St. Lawrence, the Niagara, I mean, the places where we run these a lot are, you know, crystal clear water a lot of the time. So 
they seem to lend themselves towards that. Uh, a lot of people have picked up on that. Also, just being able to change those rigs. I mean, once you get confident that muskies like to bite tubes, if you want to, and you can put a weight inside that tube or a certain style of jig head in that tube that basically makes it go wherever you want it to go, whether you want it to be 30 feet down or two feet under the surface acting like a jerk bait. You know, it's funny because you got all these different guys doing it in all different ways and everybody has the best way. I mean, I'll tell you for us, I mean, for me, everybody looks at tubes as like a jigging bait or like a, a bait that you move slower. I'll tell you this, there's no soft plastic bait that you can move faster than a tube. And that produces a ton of fish for me, especially in the summer casting. I mean, we will run a, a very heavy jig head in those tubes, uh, whether it's a swim head or a bullet head. And I mean, we will literally, you know, I always tell people to use one weight, go a half ounce or an ounce more than they think. You know, they should feel uncomfortable. <laughs> you want to feel like you need to move that bait to keep it up out of the weeds or whatever. You want to cast it and immediately have to pop that bait three times just to keep it up out of the weeds. It's so, we get so many strikes in those first three fast pops that it's ridiculous. Along with, you know, you keep doing that, you know, to, to the boat and you elicit a lot of strikes with a very fast retrieve from a tube. That's one of the biggest, I'd say, misrepresentations that people give is that they see themselves, you know, slowly popping the tube around like they would for bass or something like that. I mean, the biggest way that we use them differently is that we move them real fast and it is a killer technique. I mean, if people aren't doing that, they should. Like I was saying before, the jigging's great. They're great for that. They're great for, I mean, we've caught it. We catch a lot of fish on them at Chautauqua running them like jerk baits. And, and doing things slower. You can do a lot with them. I think that's what people are figuring out. You know, I think that's why the sales have gone up. I think people are catching a lot of fish on them right now, too. Al Linder, years ago, said, I got two words for you, folks. Tube, jig. And he talked about that being such a, a positive bait to use on any species of fish. And it's so yeah. weird. You know, I mean, there was a couple different tubes that came out into the musky world. And then all of yep. a sudden, Red October hit the market, and you've got a really, real, really, really cool product that matches up with the whole musky world. And I, well, you know, if it wasn't for uh, the Tiger Tube, if they didn't stop making the Tiger Tube, there may not be Red October baits. I mean, we were running the Tiger Tubes, and they stopped making them. And then we were like, "What the heck? It's our best bait." And then we just made them bigger and better and better and all sorts of colors and better rigs and everything. And that's Red October now, you know. But, uh, I mean, that's what it came from was just what you're talking about. Spence Petros, you know, in the, in the, in the Tiger Tube. Always been a bait that's been around for history of, of fishing, you know. And, I mean, it just matches up perfect. So, I don't know. If you guys aren't using them, definitely check them out. You can't ask for better people to uh, represent a company. That's for sure, Hans. Thank you. Mark, Mark works uh, very, very hard on uh, on getting these baits out. I mean, these are every single bait, every single tube that we make, you know, goes through his hands. And uh, these are American-made, as American as it gets, you know. 
we grind it out. <laughs> so it's uh it's a cool thing. Yeah, I know a thing or two about some of the color options you offer. I think I don't know how many <laughs> how many are we up to now, Hans. I don't know how many of you. It always it keeps just growing. So I mean, Mark Mark tells me he's like. Jeff just added these more colors. He's going to kill me, you know? <laughs> that's kind of what no, we do around it's, here. It's great. It's great. <laughs> all right. That's what we're all doing. You know, if you're involved in the musky world, you're probably hurting yourself in some way. Yep. Absolutely. But it's just how it is. You know, it's a game for the tough. Before, before we let you go, what's your, what's the rod looking like when you're working these tubes? I, I've always been told to make a lot of rips up on it. Is that kind of your technique when when you're using a tube? Yeah, I am huge on being prepared for strikes. So I really like to point the rod at the tube. Or, I mean, and I, I do this for any of my other soft plastics that I may use. But, I mean, for, for the tube, I'm pointing at the bait with the rod. So just on a slight angle down towards the water. But then I do small pops of just so I'll, I'll pick up line like i'll do three quick turns and then another pop where i raise that rod i never go above shoulder i never want to give up that power stroke i always want to have a big sweep when i get to set that hook you know what i mean so i keep everything in front of me i don't do side pulls because i mean of course, the 56 grabs it when you're 90 degrees to the fish and handcuffed. You know what I mean? So I like to keep that rod pointing at the tube and do small upwards pops and just keep that thing moving fast. And that's how I uh, get my clients to cast them. That's how I run them. And I mean, it really just sets you up so that one of those times you may feel something weird in between or you feel a pop or you feel whatever. Even when you're doing a pop, sometimes you just feel the weight and you're right there to just sweep into a huge hook set. That's my big thing is, I I mean, with any soft plastics, even though the tubes hook up pretty good because they're hollow and they the teeth tear through them pretty easy, you still got to be on your toes, you know? So I, I really feel like doing it that way with that heavier weight, the slightly upwards pops keep that bait up and uh, it also keeps you in position to let it have it good and get those hooks drove home. Yeah, that's all good advice. It's kind of weird, though. Like, you'd mentioned it earlier. You talk about how it doesn't do this and it doesn't do that. I always call it, like, the wet sock. You see the tails, they're all cut, but it's not like they're all flailing around in different directions. They wiggle a little. They wiggle a little, but not much. You know, they just kind of do a real gentle little flutter, but, like, they're they're not doing much. And you're right. I mean, people look at it and they're like, this is dumb. Then when all of a sudden, uh, you know, the biggest fish of your life just inhales it, then you're like, well... Maybe I'll cast it again sometime. Absolutely. And then it happens again. Yeah, I've definitely seen more than enough muskies caught on tubes. Steve Jensen I fish with quite a bit. He loves them. He's won tournaments with them. He'll talk about them all day long, every day. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, they're great baits. And He's a good he's a good tube fisherman. Yep, absolutely. I know he, every season he pretty much has to come over and you know, get 10 of them from, from you guys at yeah. one of the shows. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. They're, you know, they're catching on. It's funny because, I mean, we've been at this for 20 years now, <laughs> but it's it's one of those things where you just keep grinding, and, I mean, it's it's happening right now, you know. It's hard to make enough. 
So Hans, uh, you know, one of the neat things about Red October is, is that all the different rigging opportunities that you present, and maybe you can kind of do a quick rundown of what all that means. Yeah, I mean, really, there's a lot of factors that go into it. Of course, weight being uh, the number one factor, but there's also where the pull eye comes out of the tip of the tube. So we have options where the weight, whether it's a swim head or a bullet head, is all located in the front of the tube which therefore makes it dive deeper and straight down, makes it a deeper rig. And then the heavier those are, just the deeper it will be, or the deeper it will fish, you know? I mean, any of these rigs are lead. So, I mean, if you let them sink, they'll sink 100 feet down if you want them to. But it's where they fish using a, a musky-style cadence, you know? So the the big thing is, is any of our through-the-nose rigs where the pull-eye comes right out the tip, and they also have the weight staggered, one in the nose and one back in the tube, so that the tube does not, sink nose down it sinks a little more horizontal which slows the sink rate and keeps that bait way up high so i mean with those if you work it at a at a musky style cadence it's going to stay in the top foot or two of water so there's a lot of guys that like that for fishing over the tops of the weeds or doing whatever we did come out with a heavier version of that last year that is instead of being two half balls that go inside of that through the nose rig now they're full so it's a much heavier rig, and uh, it helps you keep a little bit, keep it a little bit down, and still get that jerkbait style action. With the swim heads, uh, those have a thirty degree pull eye, so they come out thirty degrees from center. And those are kind of I use those mostly for casting. I love the two ounce swim head is one of my go tos for casting on the Niagara or the or the St Lawrence or wherever. That's my number one rig. But the bullet heads work great too. The bullet heads are. Uh, our deepest and those are those come those have a 60 degree pull eye which comes more out of the top of the tube which also then helps keep it down so when you're yanking at it the surface area of the tube lends it to keep it down almost like a lip of a crankbait almost so basically it stays down there better and it just keeps it down there those are your best bet for jigging and uh keeping things real deep that's the quick rundown i mean we got so much crazy stuff with different trailers and different setups with single hooks and ones with trebles all over them and everything. So, I mean, you can, I mean, the best thing with those is to come to a show and let us explain it to you, you know, or, you know, find someone who knows what they're doing and find out what rig they like, you know? Absolutely. And, and you know, if those guys can't make it to a show and they, they're not seeing you at, you know, your shows that you're actually doing, how else can they figure that out? There's a lot of good resources on the Red October Facebook page. There's been lots of things on there that have been about rigging of tubes and whatnot. There's also a bunch of those kind of videos on like YouTube about how to rig a Red October tube and stuff like that. And uh, a lot of them are done by us. Some of them are done by other people. But there's a lot of cool stuff out there if you just search that. Uh, right now, the, uh, the Red October website is under construction. So it is i'm not going to send people there right now but within you know within a short amount of time that should be back up and running and there will be tutorials on that well hans before we head out of here if people want to find you more about you all the stuff you have going on what's the best way they can go about doing that well the best way is probably uh buffalo harbor outfitters to go to the website which is you know www.buffaloharboroutfitters.com or you could go to my Facebook page, which is either Hans the Carver or Buffalo Harbor Outfitters. Uh, all of these places have my phone number. You can feel free to give me a ring. And uh, whether you want to, you know, 
get some baits or, you know, get a fish carved or go on a fishing trip, I'll try and take care of you. And Hans, we just want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule. I know Mark probably needs you back in the shop to help him, you know, build a few more. Yeah, I'm way behind. I'm going to be here till like one in the morning now. Yep. Sorry. Sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yep. Thank you. Want to thank all of our listeners for putting up with us for another episode. And we'll catch everybody again next week.